What's up and welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance. Appreciate you guys for tuning back in. Usual, real quick, please just make sure to leave a review, leave a rating, and if you want to, and if you can, go the extra step, the extra mile, and just share it with somebody, or even post it on Instagram. If you tag me, I'm 100% going to reshare it, comment, talk to you about it. Um, it goes a long way. I appreciate it. Either way, if you're listening to this, appreciate you a lot. So this week, I got Joel Smith on the podcast. I'm super excited for this one. Uh, you know, a lot of the time in the past, I've gotten a little bit more basketball-heavy uh, professionals within this industry on, whether it's skill development or specifically basketball performance coaches. Uh, now, Joel isn't necessarily a basketball strength and conditioning coach or a basketball performance coach. Um, he does have a little bit of a background playing basketball, but he's more of a track and field uh, specialist, and he has a lot of experience with swimmers. Um, he's been in a Division Three, uh, Division One sector. He's been all over, and what I really like about Joel is that he's extremely creative. He's extremely open-minded, and he doesn't succumb to just this traditional uh, strength and conditioning and performance norm so to speak he he's so open-minded to so many different philosophies different views different objectives different ways to train and it's so cool to see the things that he does he has he has courses out he has books out he has a phenomenal podcast called the just fly sports performance podcast it he gets incredible incredible guests he has over 300 i think 350 episodes on there um, if you have not listened to that, I highly, highly recommend to go listen to that. I'll put it in the show notes. But what's, again, great about Joel is that he's so open-minded and he has a plethora of knowledge. Um, in a lot of the podcast episodes on his own show, even in this show, he'll refer back to guests that he's had on and relay and refer to exactly what they're talking about, what he's learned from them. He uses those in his own practice every single day. Like he, he uses all the knowledge that he's gained through 350 plus episodes on his podcast, communicating and networking and learning from the people that he's had as guests on his show, seeing them in person. He has, again, a plethora of knowledge in the performance realm. And we go into that a little bit in today's episode, talking about obviously basketball performance, but also just strength and conditioning performance in general. We talk a little bit about deceleration, plyometrics, and we get into a lot of good stuff this episode. So I'm super excited that Joel was able to get on. If you don't know who he is, please go check him out. I'm going to include everything in the show notes, all the the links, the URLs, everything that you'll need to go find him on all social medias and all platforms. So please go make sure to either before this or after this, go check him out. So without further ado, Joel Smith. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the TCP Podcast. This is Tyler Clark with TC Performance, and I'm excited. I got Joel Smith on a Zoom call. So this should be a super good episode for you guys. Um, just to start, Joel, do you want to just give a quick background, uh, who you are, some just quick quick information on yourself? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Tyler. Uh, it's great to be here. And it's cool to do these shows that aren't um, just strength and conditioning, just track. I love that there's more fusion now between sport and performance. It's It's becoming more of like on the same level. And I see that more and more. Uh, young coaches. I think that's so cool. So I'm, I'm excited for our, our chat today. Yeah, and, and about myself, um, I was a basketball player. Uh, soccer was my first love, but basketball was my main sport for high school and middle school. Um, and 
I ended up being a big track guy, but most of that was actually because I was not good enough at the skills of basketball. And my outlet was trying to out out athlete people. It was more, it was a very like kind of lone wolf style approach to getting better at the game versus to be honest, if I could go back in time and I would have wanted to be the best basketball player I could be, I would have been going to like the local parks all the time in the summer playing three on three as much as I could, like that kind of thing. And playing with better people, like intentionally playing with better players, different players. But I I just settled for going to the same open gyms, you know, maybe going to the YMCA and playing against like worse people so I could dunk on them and feel good about myself. And doing like just like a shooting drill, I would remember like so, someone said, hey, do this, you know, run around the, the post and shoot 10 shots, like how, how many you made, you know, like that kind of thing. So very low level in terms of what I think we are, we're learning more now about promoter learning and so i i think a lot about what it would have taken for me to actually have been made it in basketball versus my outlet ended up being well hey i can just focus in on being a good athlete it's not as complex in terms of the skills and the open-mindedness of the court so that just led me into track and field strength and conditioning um, i actually ended up liking track more than what I, my early strength and conditioning offerings as an intern because Strength and conditioning to me, it was presented as, hey, just do these exercises, do them exactly like this. There was zero referencing to how athletes moved in sport, like zero consideration, like literally nothing. And it was so disappointing. <laughs> I know there was much better strength coaches out there. I think I was meant to be interning at those specific situations. Um, but I was so bored in the weight room under those coaches. Honestly, I would have rather been out like I worked moving in the summer. It's like moving people's furniture and working with other men and, and doing a task like together. I would have rather done that than actually sit in the weight room and tell athletes to do these three things on all these lifts and yell at them like that. Would, it was just not very stimulating. So I dived into track, love track because it was a combination of outputs, motor learning. How do you learn and teach skills? And ultimately, if I could get someone faster, that was the the thing whereas in sport you can do that you could run a faster 40 and it might not matter in fact in basketball i mean look like luka Doncic, you know like you look at some of these players who are or tim i remember back when i was growing up tim duncan we called him the big yawn because it's like this kind of athletic slow boring guy but who has mastery and fundamentals of the game and so yeah i i just think to me it's so that's why as these these all these concepts start to draw closer together. I think it's so beneficial for everybody. You know, it's the more disconnected you are, the more extra stuff you end up doing you don't need. And so, anyways, I, I did get back into strength and conditioning, college strength and conditioning about age 30, working at Cal after coaching in the NCAA Division Three for about six years. And I learned a lot there uh, in motor learning, even more in working with swimming. I feel like swimming is almost the ultimate motor learning sport in some level because it's it's almost impossible to, to like really be too mechanical. I mean, you can, but you think about the water, 3D fluid, like it's so feel oriented and the good right. coaches recognize that. And the amount of constraints people would set up to teach people technique really stuck with me. So a lot of what I do uh, in the world of track, um, if I work with a track athlete, is mixing everything I knew about outputs with what I learned about learning skills in the world of swimming. Um, so yeah, I also run a podcast and do the like, coaching education type stuff. And and I've had the opportunity through my own podcast. I'm sure you're getting this sense too, 
is you just get to talk to so many people and every show you just have all these ideas that you get to synthesize through the next week or months. And so the last uh, six and a half years for me has been this process of finding people I find insanely interesting and taking notes on the shows and following up with them and then trying to integrate this all into my process. And so to me, it's it's been kind of a lifetime of integration of sorts, like trying to find how does this work for sport, learning from other minds and just seeing how it all, all filters through. And then the last thing I'll say is uh, I am coaching uh, youth soccer now, which is really fun for me because it, it is getting back to sport. I mean, I'll coach six-year-olds in soccer and the time will fly by way faster than it did when I was in the weight room, honestly, at Cal. And I, I hate to say it like, it, not that I didn't enjoy my time there at Cal, like writing the workouts, implementing them, but I would get to like 40 minutes of that hour in the weight room in the gym at Cal. It's like, all right, we did our main lifts and people like doing auxiliaries and I'm just like kind of walked around talking to people sometimes because yeah. it's like, I don't know, it's just the energy. It's just like, there's no... There is not a challenge here anymore. You know what I'm saying? There's not, not this flowing. like, And I try not to actually, even since then, my training, when I can, when it's not a team with coaches of expectations, if I'm training just a small group, I funnel it so that we never get to that boredom point, even if in the gym and the performance setting. I'm sure we can talk about that. Anyways, sorry, I, I'm going um, off for a little bit longer than I had meant to. I've gotten better at making these like two minutes and I made it probably five. So uh, that's some of my background of that uh, helps people give people a picture there. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, you mentioned your podcast. For those that don't listen to the Just Fly podcast, absolutely listen to it. Uh, it's probably one of the biggest, if not the biggest, in the strength and conditioning and performance world. Um, a lot of good stuff. And I'm absolutely getting the similar experience that you are. I, I get people on. I try to get a guest once a week. Obviously, scheduling it doesn't happen every single week, but whenever I do get guests, it's phenomenal to pick their brain and and learn more from them. Um, but I actually wanted to go back to obviously you were in a college setting in a, in a weight room, strength and conditioning, with a bunch of team sports. Um, what exactly do you mean by, you know, you struggled in that situation in that setting um, versus what you do now? Like what type of training in the traditional sense? Because I also intern at a Division three level, and I. I didn't love the atmosphere. Like you're saying, it's just, it's almost like you're forcing these guys and girls to, you know, do these grindy outlifts, do these traditional periodized schemes. And it's just not necessarily conducive to the human or the brain. So like, what could you just elaborate on why that wasn't your favorite? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that's exactly it. I think some of it goes to like that, a Twitter post talking about it was kind of a joke, but I think everyone agrees. Like sometimes you have to frame this as a joke where it said a lot of strength coaches kind of failed as an athlete. They weren't as good at sport and they love lifting weights and then they still wanted to stay active in sport. And so you get the strength and conditioning industry, at least traditionally. And I'll, I will say that watching some of those old Boyd Epley videos, I think that they were like, he was the pioneer in the seventies with Nebraska football. And that was entertaining to me. I thought he was so much more creative than you would just think on the outset, you know? And so, but sport is like, sport is chaotic. It's reactive. You can't predict it. And it's so facilitating of flow states and joy. And like, there's all these things in sport that to me are not compatible with the way the weight room is historically set up. Because again, no, I mean, no discredit to any single strength coach. I think this is more the product of maybe where the community came from a little bit is it's if you're not good at sport, 
you you want to the chaos is too uncomfortable you want to put things into a little bit neater box if that makes sense you want to put something it into something more manageable i see this even in sprinting and like that's everyone loves sprinting it's just like it's funny because even if your sport didn't d demand you needed to run an amazing 40 yard dash people will like just almost obsessively pursue that just yep. because there's something like competitive about it but, but there's also it's also like the most single skill that we all can identify with no matter what we do is running and so you throw competition there well how can i get that output as high as i can anyways i find that sprinting and running it's very simple on a level it's a wheel that happens to hit the ground and experience deformations but it's also people want to make that complex thing really simple in their minds so they feel like they can coach it yeah. and so what i mean is most people listening to this have probably done some sort of like skipping marching drill like a high knee skipping drill to warm up for their running or their whatever um and the coaches will say oh you got to do your knees like high like this, put your arms like this. But in reality, what they're trying to do is they're so uncomfortable with the complexity of sprinting. They want to try to put it into something and probably doing this unconsciously because someone taught them to do it this way. But, and I'll just say we, cause I've done this too, is we want to try to take the complex and put it into something we feel like we can then manage and make an impact with. And, and, and in a sense, that's not bad because, yes, somebody needs to teach very basic weightlifting that it is extremely simple. Uh, but in my opinion, it just doesn't take a long time to learn that, that basic. Yeah. And then we get bored. So we try to overteach that basic thing if it's just in the weight room. And I think a lot of what we see in the gym stems out of boredom and wanting to make an impact because things are a little compartmentalized sometimes. Um, so that's that's I, I think that it, it's just the way that that brain looks at that. But again, I will finally say, I, I do think that sometimes those brains are needed, like sports science. It's like, don't be, I think Jonas Dodu said this, don't be data driven, but be like data reflective or something like that. Like look back at the data, like someone needs to do the, the not chaotic stuff, right? It's just how do we implement all that and realize when too much of your training is actually doing in a, too much minutiae that does, doesn't matter and to ultimately ultimately to be good you have to get in chaos and manage chaos and that's the yeah, fits with motor learning and rob gray i'm sure you have stuff the bobby white and all these people that you've had on yeah are that's that's their thing like that's where you have to go no absolutely and i'm i'm, I'm interested because i've had conversations about this um kind of the perception action model <clears throat> I, you'll see it a lot in skills training um in whatever sport you're going to see chaos, you're going to see perception and action in our agility work and like court work and the field work, whatever sport it is. But whenever you take it or you're thinking about the weight room, do you, have you ever implemented perception action into the weight room? Is there a time and place for that? Um, if so, like what kind of context and, and how would you implement that into the weight room or do you keep them separate? Yeah. So for me, it just depends in the sense and that's, that's, that's the, that's the out saying it depends. Like, I will say right now, I don't in person, I don't deal with people or groups that for me, I can, I mean, I deal with like groups, small groups. So like one, two or three athletes and excuse me. So within that, like one, that's, it's kind of not enough to do a whole lot. I mean, I could do one v ones and two v twos and things like that. I like um, Jamie Smith from U of Strength has like a progression where it's like, all right, here's all your, here's all your one V ones. Here's all your two V twos. And 
for me with the athletes that I typically get in person, it's just not, um, I, I don't, how do I put this? Like uh, there's other qualities that I'd rather focus on in the scope of perceiving and reacting that I would say are really lower on the tree. So if I was working with, let's say a football team in the off season, I would absolutely do it or basketball. I would try to craft some small sided games that were reflective of their sport in one V one, two V two and three V three. That would definitely be part of what we did. Um, Because like, let's just say the average person I work with is like a 12 year old multi-sport in person, like, Mm -hmm. or a 23 year old who actually just wants to be fit and fast and athletic. So in some of those, those types of situations, like let's just say the 12 year old for me, I see them and they're just missing a lot of general stuff that to me is even lower on the tree. So by that, I mean like just being able to crawl, climb, like do athletic things with their body. Um, You could even say parkour, parkour being a donor sport Mm -hmm. because I know there's still fruits to grab there in that. And I will say if I'm building a pyramid, that bracket of just basic human level stuff, just think of a kid playing, you know, I mean, I watch, I have kids that are four and six or watch kids playing in the playground, watch them jump off the slide, play tag, jump over and chase and dodge all these objects because I feel that there is simple low hanging fruits to grab there. And I really prioritize the flow state of the workout. And that's a big one. I won't go into the slightly more complex setting up 1v1s and 2v2s and 3v3s and things like that. Um, that also has dictated how I've prioritized my time in learning those, you know, taking time to learn those. If I was working with like, hey, all right, I got 20 basketball players in, 20 football players, then I would take more time to be mindful about setting up some more 2v2s and 3v3s and things like that. That could be donor, a more of a donor to what they actually do. So it just, I just haven't been incentivized to, to get to that point uh, currently. However, I do utilize a lot of perception action based on a very basic level. Like even just say you dodge the stick, roughhousing, like yep. something, giving them something, stuff with throwing them balls in the air, giving them playing chase, tag, uh, dodging and jumping over things. So it's more like gym class, I guess you could say. So it's, that's, my base is gym class. And then if I had a group, I would probably study and put more effort into dedicated 2v2s, 3v3s and things like that. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense though, because obviously if your population is, like you said, 12 year olds, you want to keep it a little bit more probably general rather than stacking on the more complex um, stuff. So that makes a lot of sense. And now my follow-up to that is um, for warmups. I think a big thing in the strength and conditioning, I mean, <clears throat> really any sport related field um is like this mundane and very like militant super boring just stick to the basics warm up and i i feel like maybe it's been happening for a while but from what i've seen uh warm-ups have been getting a little bit more flexible um mm-hmm. a lot more cognitive based stuff uh just having fun in a warm-up can you talk a little bit about warm-ups because i like to try to you know make it as fun as possible make it as engaging as possible and not just you know, raising the heart rate, activating, mobilizing, those things are important. But if we're not challenging the, the athlete cognitively or at least engaging the brain, I feel like we're not necessarily preparing them for the workout, for the practice, for the game. So could you just talk on on that a little bit? Yeah. Oh, man, that is that that's like, yeah, because I, I will say like with the perception, actually getting into more of the advanced game based stuff, I'm that's not my wheelhouse. I do hope to learn more about it. Um, that's like I'm, I actually would love to coach like I've, I've said this before the show. I, I want to coach high school track is like the next on my to do list. I also want to coach like JV basketball, freshman basketball. That would be 
I mean, I love coaching like youth soccer. So that would be a dream for me just to coach more of these different sports and setups. Um, but it's funny because, yeah, when I got into uh, so I started working at Cal. That was my first strength and conditioning job. And even in my internships, I don't remember too much about how they warmed up. I, I But what I do remember it was funny. One of the guys warmed up with abs, which I found funny at the time. Like, I was just like, what is this like world? Uh, I mean, it was it was all robotic, though. My first internship, super robotic. And then I got to Cal and I, I'm not I had very good mentors at Cal from a perspective, especially of just like the mental and social emotional elements of just being a coach. Um, I learned by managing a room, teaching a big room of athletes. Like yeah. I grew exponentially there and I can't thank my mentors there enough. I mean, they were brilliant teachers and and they did a great work with what they did. But, and I, this is the thing is that what I was taught there about warming up, but it's funny because here I am getting a D1 strength and conditioning job that you have 200 applicants for. And I don't even know the warm up air quotes the way that, you know, most people would do it. And so I go in and I see this thing called movement prep. And I'm yep. like, oh, what is this? And it's, it's, it's like eight stations of people just doing like monster walks, you know, shoulder taps. Um, I don't you know what? Just boring, like rote, boring stuff. And but at the time and but it's like one of the coaches who was particularly good at that mental element, he had like a motivation station in there. And and this coach was mentored by the people who told him to do this. But he found mm -hmm. that his way out was he had a station where all you do is just motivate the other guys. You know, you're just cheering on your teammates or something like that. It was a motivation station. Yeah. Um. So anyways, I, I I'm like, all right, I guess this is how you do it. Before that point, literally, it would be like you would do like a couple sets of overhead squats and start your lift. And that was it. And, right. or, you know, and your first set was kind of like your, um, that was part of your warmups too. And so I would got all down that train, like, all right, I got to do my movement prep. And I remember so specifically men's tennis being in there one day and, and of all the sports, you get different gradations of people who are willing to put up with boredom cross country and swimming. They would do something boring the whole time and probably on some level be okay with it. Like they would do it because they're used to that stuff. Yeah. Um, and I had those teams, but our men's tennis looked like death, like doing that stuff. They were so bored. Everyone had long faces. And the typical thing that strike coaches would say is, oh, they're soft. I need to learn to like sell that more to them. They got to buy into this boring warm up. And it was so it was after a couple of years of doing that. I remember once, too, this was kind of this was a step in that evolution. So started with doing that, implementing that boring warm. And the coaches wanted to see that, too. I think I want to say like coaches were like for track, like, Joel, you don't warm the kids up enough or something. I was like, OK, um, I mean, this come from track practice, right? Like, how much do you need to do uh, if right. you just walked off the track and you do the sprints or basketball or anything? I mean, basketball is the best warm up for so many qualities. So, I mean, I remember. I remember the highest I ever jumped and touched in high school. I got like, I'm six foot six one. And I touched, uh, like I got about my finger over the top of that backboard. So like, or the, oh, not wow. the, backboard, the, the square, the square. Oh, okay. I was gonna say, that's crazy. I'd be superhuman. I'd be superhuman. I remember seeing like a six, nine guy, like just touch the top of the backboard. Like that is insane. How high yeah. that thing is. So I, is. I got above the top of the square by about three inches, two or three. And that was right after doing all these like, suicide sprints at the end of practice where my coach was like constantly yelling at me to run faster uh -huh. and it's funny because that that warmed me up so well so it's just funny that we think okay you're all warmed up from basketball now come in and do like eight other things that are you don't need to do it it's just silly and so uh anyways 
there was a, a throws coach though who came in wanted to write his own strength workouts and I was like, all right, fine. You know, and that's kind of the thing is you kind of let the coach do their own strength workouts if they want to. And he had no warm up. I was like, coach, you have no warm up. I have to, by my end of the job, I have to have one warm up. And he's like, oh, I'll just have their first step be the, you know, yeah. the warm up. And honestly, I was so kind of apprehensive because I had been conditioned the last two, three years to be like, oh, you need to warm up. And, you know, it was totally fine. They came in from the field. Well, it's funny because they had thrown for two hours. And then they rode the bus or the, the van back to the university uh, for like 20 minutes, 30 minutes, cooling down. But honestly, within, yeah, they just did their warm up sets and they were totally fine. And mm. I remember just seeing that and being like, yeah, why am I doing all this stuff? And so all that led to in tennis. I remember this is almost a lack of preparation on some level, maybe. But I remember there'd be days where. Uh, like I had the team I don't know if it was like a lack of preparation or like it was like hey I just gotta warm you guys up now and I didn't like I didn't have something written up or maybe I had a card that I didn't have on me or something happened where I just had to get the team and just start making the warm-up up on my own this was like the first step to this yeah and I remember I would and I remember going through my head thinking okay we do some lunges we do some crawls we do some of this and that and just at first it was still really boring but I remember, though, thinking, well, shouldn't you be able to warm a team up like just off the cuff? I mean, this isn't like season planning where you need to like set right. your schedule and set some things in stone. This is like, you know, and even in a practice, like it starts, you have an idea, but you're not going to do the practice and not improvise right. <laughs> if it's basketball. You're going to. So anyway, that just led me on this trail of making that workout off the cuff and more and more and more exciting every month and every year it got a little more fun and a little more exciting to the point where eventually they would come in like this would be an average day like three years later they come in i put some techno on that they liked we do a bunch of like groundwork like crawls and rolls and tiger bounds on the ground and like all this interesting groundwork for like five ten minutes then we'd start doing chase tag games uh we'd start doing um like a drop the ball agility type games like like rat like reactive agility type games and or we just play basketball or like that's the funny part is I would warm tennis up with playing basketball for 30 minutes and then we didn't do any other warm up and they would come in and their lifts would all be way better. Yeah. And I was like, why do we have to put all this mental effort into like all these manufactured warm ups that we think we want? Again, it's parts and control. Oh, we want to control the fastest medialis muscle by doing all these terminal knee extensions. We want to control the glute medius by doing all these monster band walks. You think that person isn't getting that when they're doing all the defensive side shuffles and cuts? Like, of right. course they are. And and in spades, way more doing it emotionally and playing. So, yeah, so it eventually, um, we the tennis taught me a lot of that. Not all teams were receptive to that. For example, my water polo team, the coaches would not have liked to see that at all. They would have hated it. They right. wanted to see grind and I have to give that to them if they want it. That's one of the things I did not like about working in that environment. And my, like the swim teams were in the middle, like they would be okay. The coaches would be okay with some of that. They liked like a good deal of that. But if I did it for 30 minutes, I think they'd be not too happy. And to be honest, you know, some days that probably wouldn't have been great. So it's all evolved from there. These days, what I'll typically do is if let's just, this is just general, you know, 14 year old comes in. Okay. We're going to be doing uh, like literally the first thing we do is I have a dowel rod and I'm get, having them taking them through an active series of dodges. Like I'll be waving it at their feet. They have to like step over it. They have to dodge under it. I'll like wave it at them and call like rolling. So they have to 
jump and do like a dive roll over it. They have to do a cartwheel. It just becomes evolved as, so that's an example of one thing that I might do. Uh, or they have to crawl and I have the dowel run. They have to jump over it or, you know, do a stealth crawl under it. So it's as reactive. It's all very reactive for the first 10, 20, sometimes even 30 minutes. Um, I have monkey bars and I have a lot of other training tools that I, water bags are fun too, because those are reactive. We'll do games like the other day I had the guy um, having a water bag and he was like a goalkeeper with it. And I threw a foam ball and he had to use the water bag to stop it. So it's like, Hey, if you're going to train your shoulders, how much more fun to make it a game (laughs) instead of just, Hey, just take this and do shoulder. I mean, that's fine, but it's so easy to get buried in unnecessary complexity. And anytime you can add a game or a task to anything rote, it becomes so much more, not only um, stimulating to the muscle, but there's a feeling of aliveness associated with it that is so much better from an output perspective, getting you ready. And the last thing I'll just say with it is if you do pay attention to how your body feels in this stuff, how ready am I to go? Like play like like for the strength coach. Hey, go play basketball. Go play tennis. Note how your body feels. Okay, now go back in the weight room. Do your warm up. Note how different and boring and unalive this is. So, I'm always trying to capture that feeling of aliveness with that warm up process, and then like a crescendo, like a song. You know, there's something like a stat, like it's about point six one. You know, uh, you know, so sixty percent through a song, you get the beat, the peak. You know, mm-hmm. the like the total peak. And so for me, I try to craft it. So we're warming up, we're building it up, whatever the output is, we hit that at about somewhere around that level of the workout. Whereas so often it's like quick, boring warm up, hit the main squat set, and then you're riding auxiliaries down the whole time. That would be a horrible song. Like that would be the, the I mean, I'm sure there's songs like that, but that no one would really that would not be a hit. That's for sure. People would not be that interested in that, at least not most of the time. So uh, no, just that's... thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's an interesting um, comparison with the with the music um, and like sixty percent. You're trying to meet, uh, reach the peak, um, but I like I like how you put it, and that's kind of one of my goals whenever I warm up my my athletes. Is like if I can get them to implicitly exude as much effort as they can without me like deliberately and explicitly telling them, "Hey, we're going to do this. I need you to give me this much energy and effort." It's if I can just put somebody like something I do a lot is mirror drills. So if I put somebody in front of them and they have to mirror the same exact intent, the same exact movement, you know, they're, they're, they're working harder because they have to match the person in front of them, their energy, their effort, their intent. So it's, it's all implicit without me having to deliberately tell them, Hey, I need you to work harder. You know what I mean? So, and it's, it's engaging. There's a smile on their face. If you're interacting with somebody, you're just more likely to be a little bit happier, probably be more warmed up. And plus, so like right now I'm working with a, a college basketball team. Um, so what we usually do is we'll go through some sort of skip series in our warm up, um, like dynamic warm up, and then I like to do like partner stuff towards the end, uh, just to engage the brain and stuff. And then we'll go into like as a team some sort of either full court layup drill or full court uh, shooting drill, just to continue getting their heart rate up. And then we'll get into some live play, some execution stuff. So it's like what I do is probably. I would say seven to 10 minutes. And then we get into another eight to 10 minutes of just layups and, you know, full court running, just getting the heart rate going, get blood flow through the whole body. So it's like a pretty good, uh, I guess, seamless process. Um, obviously there's not always perfect, but I, I like that rather than just, you know, drilling them into the ground with these 
extremely mundane uh, warmups. So I, everything that you said, I, I agree with for sure. Yeah, it's, I think about, I actually more of my thought process too with it, how it's like in, I'd be curious how people would do that in basketball practice. Because I don't know, like football, like I remember learning from Rob Gray and some others uh, talking about just the dynamics of how a football practice comes together. I remember at Cal in the stadium watching football. It's like it starts with the the individual position coach. You know, they're doing like, think of yeah. that as the game-like warm-up within your small group. And hopefully it's more, right, perceptive and reactive. I mean, some of them are probably doing like more rote drills and things like that. But I think nowadays there's more as we continue to learn. Uh, so it's like you're starting with the smalls and then the whole team's coming together. So it's like you're starting from these small nucleus, small drills. You can think like lower intensity. It's building the groups coming together. It's building. It's like this whole orchestra. And so, so much to me, too, would love to. I know there's only so much space in one lifetime, but even just to think about everything as a product of rhythm and flow and like as if this were a piece of music, what would it sound like? So, yeah, yeah regardless, I think it's just such a cool concept. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um so what, what I wanted to get into next was I was actually just listening to a Q&A on my way, um, one of your Q&As on my way here. Um, and you were talking a little bit about narrow and um, wide infrastructural angles and kind of how that dictates, obviously, the athlete that you are. Um, so could you kind of, you know, generally, obviously, this is a much more complex topic than I'm making it right now. But mm -hmm. um, if you have two athletes, one narrow, one wide, um, how would your programming be differently for a basketball player say and whenever i i think of those <clears throat> kind of athletes that kind of first thing that comes to mind is like a john morant for narrow and then yeah. like zion williamson for wide obviously he's freaking nature but yeah. just body types that's kind of where my mind goes mm -hmm. um if you were programming for in in whatever terms you want i guess like how would you program in a weight room for a narrow versus a wide infrastructure angle yeah, that's a good question. And I will say, too, just from a developmental perspective, I've heard that that doesn't really fully hit that angle until you're like 20. But I, okay. I think you see it a lot earlier, too. So yeah. if I'm like, for me, if an athlete isn't in high school yet, I don't even care. Like, there's absolutely zero consideration. If you are in high school, or I would say especially college, like let's just say you're developed. You're developed, and it's pretty obvious what you are. Um, for the main one is just volume of weightlifting and the intensity. So generally, so here's a couple of rules. One is a wide, a wide can get away with grinding out lifts more often. And I will just say too, setting up nocebos, like don't do this is such a plague to our industry in the sense of like, it's very marketable to say, all right, well, here's my system. And if you do this, that's going to mess you up. Do this instead. So, you know, take this all with a grain of salt that human beings are so adaptable. And, but so then I will tread very carefully and saying, oh, here's exactly what a wide should and shouldn't do. Here are some general trends. Like a Jean Moran, I wouldn't want him grinding out movements in the weight room. Bar should always stay moving pretty quickly. As soon as it slows down for an arrow, you will at least be in a place where you could create more negative compensations. That's not to mm -hmm. say that if a John Moran occasionally grinds out a lift, it's bad, but just make the trend lighter. Like instead of 80 to 90%, maybe it's at more 70 to 80, something like that. So to me, that's probably the main one. Uh, and then also I've noticed that Neuros can do better with more plyometrics. Granted, if you're a basketball player, basketball is inherently plyometric. So I would just say that if you are going to do like, like for me, my thought with that is, hey, 
what can I give you that you're not getting in your sport? It's probably some level of more explosive depth jump at some point. Like I remember Tim Gore doing that, like Dwayne Wade and stuff like that. And Boosh yep. next day, your track coach has talked about, Hey, if you put depth jumps in, like maybe do 20 of them every two weeks, that's probably pretty good for overload. Uh, they can handle more plyometric stuff. So if you're doing plyometric type work, a narrow can tend to um, handle more. And the other thing that I would say that's interesting is that narrows do end up being a little bit more asymmetrical in nature than wides, and that's okay. And so it, on some level, that matters more if I'm coaching track and someone's acceleration and like being okay with like a, a stride mismatch or even trying to enhance that. And, and that's what I will occasionally try to enhance mismatches to create like this momentum. But for the way room, I've become a really big fan and you could do this for everybody, but of like staggered stance lifts where mm -hmm. one foot is slightly in front of or behind the other. And that typically ends up for me uh, with the left foot being slightly back because from a alignment perspective, most people are twisted that way. But let's just say, yeah, my right foot slightly in front. What that does is it actually lets my um, hips and shoulders be more reciprocal in the lift, meaning it puts a little more gait cycle into the lift. It puts a little more um, beneficial twist, like a subtle little beneficial twist into the lift versus if it's always perfectly symmetrical, I think that can, especially for a narrowly do a lot of internal, um, think about a bilateral squat. It's basically two legs, both squeezing in towards the middle. Maybe they're not actually the knees that are going in. Sometimes they do, but it's like to do a bilateral lift, you have to create a bilateral internal squeeze to hit the lift. And I found that when you just stagger it a little bit, you don't have as much of that. And it's a little bit more athletic. And especially for narrows, I think that's a really good strategy. So um, yeah. generally, don't grind out your lifts as much. Um, you're a little more asymmetrical. And you can, I think they benefit from a little more staggered type stuff. Type stuff. Uh, the last thing I'll say too is wides tend to not be able to rotate as well. Like mm -hmm. LeBron, is, people have said, is a wide. And he's more of a linear type player. Uh, in the way that he kind of like he gets a step and he's a very like linear and explode type person uh, compared to someone who's really like going side to side a lot. Mm -hmm. And so they, it's been said, I would agree with this, that the wides need to do more upper body work that's more alternating. So instead of letting them pound away at barbell bench, make them do more like like a medicine ball walk over push up where they have a medicine ball on one hand. They're going to do a push up, walk over the ball, go to go to the other hand just to help them with that rotational element. So they tend to need things that will help them rotate more. I uh, hope I hope that's a good, like simple enough. Uh, try not to no SIBO, create hard rules to set anyone on that path. But those are some basics that I would start with. That's that's perfect. I, like I said, I, or like you said, I should say, uh, you don't want to tell, you know, like a watch should be doing this and there should be doing this. Obviously context matters. It'll de be dependent on their situation and who they are as a person. So that's a great answer. All right. So next question that I had, you brought up plyos. Um, Obviously, narrows probably more, probably plows will help them a little bit more. Um, but interested to hear your opinion. Do you have like a hierarchy on plyometrics as far as like which plyometric gives you the most stimulus, which is more potent, which is more elastic, which is more, you know what I mean? Drives the CNS more. Mm -hmm. um, just some examples like sprinting, bounds, hops, uh, skips, gallops. Like, do you have a hierarchy? of these um, plyometrics, when to use them, what you would use them for. Just curious on your thoughts with that. Yeah, 100%. So I'll start with the absolute most basic. I think it's really good to start. I just did a seminar this past week and it was all about sprinting and acceleration. 
And it, since it was all coaches, I started with probably some more complex concepts. Mm-hmm. And it's just funny because you realize as soon as like if half the group is getting it and half the group isn't, it's just like, oh, man, I needed to regress and start from a simpler level. And so I'll start with, for me, the simplest thing I would say is, well, one is basketball itself is an incredibly plyometric sport. So uh, we need to think about, well, how do we create overload? And the easiest way is to do drops. So dropping in, in a game, you will occasionally have a high drop. You go and block a shot. You're coming off of a dunk or whatever. And that is one cool thing is watching people come off a dunk and then have this little bounce when they hit the ground. Like that's so like insanely reactive. But I, I like to start with a very basic, I just call it an altitude drop leg. I got it from Jay Schrader. So it's basically like an altitude drop, like dropping off a box, landing on the ground, being soft, or I shouldn't say soft necessarily, but silent is a better word. Soft yeah. might mean I hit the ground and like really slowly fold up into a deep squat, which you could, that would offer a benefit. But what we really want to see in a plyometric landing is the general ability. And this is what will overload. Uh, the tissues is to land with as straight legs as possible without locking them out. And this is a drop landing. So straight legs as possible. And then as soft and silent as possible. And then to also be able to land in a way where you're not like moving around. So you can literally trap the energy. Uh, So an altitude drop leg version of that is where you would be standing on a box and you're like the karate kid. So the karate kid, uh, it's like, oh, I'm so dating myself because about 20 years ago, everyone would know the karate kid standing on like the um, <laughs> the block on the beach. And he's like staying with one knee lifted. But yeah, so you'll you'll stand w- on the on the box with one leg on the box and the other knee is just kind of lifted up like a sprint, like, you know, as if you were sprinting or whatever. And what you'll do is you'll push off the box and you'll bring both knees together in the air and then release out of that and then just land straight legged on the ground and stay there. And that's one of my, that was Jay Schrader's. Like I've heard people say, Oh yeah, my first day training with Jay, like we had to do like a hundred of those or something like that. I don't know how high the box was, but I used to be kind of against drops on some level because if we think about people coach snap downs, they, you drop and you coach the landing and coach the arms back into this like neat controlled landing position. Right. And there was some research that had said, if you did too many drops like that, your jump would actually start to be segmented. It would You would jump and kind of be stuck in the bottom too long. What I found is that those basic drops where it's like you're literally landing with almost straight legs and just staying there, like a, it's just a hit and you're not, you're not like swinging your arms back like you're loading. It's literally just a stop and every muscle contracts to stop you. I don't really look at that as any sort of specific skill with jumping. It's literally just how fast can all muscles contract to stop you. And then there is like some foot and fascial balance, like to actually hit the ground and interact there. So I do like starting with teaching athletes that basic skill. Mm -hmm. I think that everyone should be able to do that. And I would imagine that some of the most athletic explosive players in the NBA would be incredibly good at that kind of thing. So branching out from there, I, I just did a seminar where I had these categories and I've I've had this on the more boring level for a long time, like like the levers of the foot. I learned that from Darian Barr. But I think about the categories of like teaching athletes to deflect, deflect themselves off the ground. And when I think about that, I think about like a, a good single leg, like a LeBron, you know, deflecting himself off the ground, single leg jump. Uh, then I have the yield category, which is basically the ability to drop down and then go down into a squat 
because you need that. If you can't do that, you're going to set yourself up for like a risk of a knee injury. Literally, if I can't yield down into the ground at all, I'm going to hit the ground like a brick and I have less options and injuries happen when I have less options. Not to mention too, uh, if you watch really good athletes, like driving around, like, you know, getting low and driving, driving around a defender, you see a lot of lowering, you see a lot of yielding. So you need to be able to get in those positions just to play the game well. So a yielding plyometric, uh, I'll just, let me go through the definitions, then I'll kind of go through them. Then a bounce plyometric is like basically like a little hurdle hop with that you don't, you don't really go down at all. It's the opposite of yielding. It's literally just hopping along like typical pogos, if that makes sense. Just super basic. Uh, and then the last one is drop. So there's deflect or yield, deflect, bounce, and then drop. And so for the um, deflecting, like teaching people to move a little bit more like LeBron, that would be like doing galloping drills, but quick. Not like when we do gallops and we coach it, we like, oh, well, drive your knee really high and really try to get up. But as soon as you lose that quick ground contact, you really lose the whole exercise. So uh, for athletes, a basketball player, just a single leg jump, just warming up with gallops where you're just really quick off the ground and just getting used to that and and then working that out from there. I like that. Um, bounce stuff, I will do depth. I will do depth jumps. Um, so a depth jump where you drop and then you hit the ground and you kind of bounce over a hurdle, that would be a bounce. Um, you also can do, this is where it doesn't become bounce so much, <laughs> but I love this. I was just doing this in the gym the other day with a couple um, people at my who came to my seminar. We worked out the day prior is I got this idea from Frank Frensich is uh, have a, take a hula hoop or a hoop and have someone try to dunk a medicine ball on it. So what we did is we did depth jumps. We dropped off a box, hit the ground and on, on rebounding, someone else had a, a hoop like a little ring and I had to dunk a foam ball on it. So it's like do a depth jump to dunk on this foam ball. And how much more like engaging is that? If I'm a basketball player, yeah, I want to dunk yeah. it on this guy. And we would do like between the legs, like, and the hoop could be anything. I could, I, I, as the hoop master can make it low. I can make it really high. I can say, I can be giving them commands. I can say, all right, here's a little hoop, do it between the legs. And it's a foam ball. So it's easy. It's not like a basketball. Right. All right. All right. I want you to do a 360. You know, I want you to do a windmill and you can, and that variety and that excitement out of the depth jump is is a lot of fun. I felt so good after that that workout. I want to say that actually, I thought about that idea either in a dream or lying in bed in the morning, which is where the best ideas it gets you. So yeah. um, that was that was a cool one. I think that resonates with a lot of hoopers too, especially if it's like the more meaning you can generate with the stuff, the better. Absolutely. Um, so. That would kind of fit. That would be in that bounce world. I will say a between the leg dunk off a bounce or off a depth drop. So if I'm on a box, I have like a foam ball and I have to go between the legs on the reversal. Your, your ground contact is going to be so fast. You, you can't be slow on the ground to have that quick like because, you know, as soon as you get up in the air, you got to instantly go into that between the legs. And it's so just so cool because, I mean, a lot of um, I guess you could say pro dunkers, they actually don't do plyometrics to my knowledge they are mostly like lift and jump people but the way they do their dunks if you look at all the different ways they can dunk there's different ground contact requirements different spins you can go on low rims and the low rims i think you actually will have even faster ground contacts Mm -hmm. so that's anyways that's um anytime you can draw out like a dunking type thing i just think there's a lot of power to that and in some way in the perfect world honestly if you just want to get basketballs better at 
basketball players that are jumping, have them be at least adept at the bounce deflect, you know, do your gallops, do your basic jumps, and then just do like low rim dunks. Cause then, cause wherever, yeah. where whatever anyone's ability is, you know, if like I can't dunk on 10, but I can do all this stuff at eight and a half, you know, and making it meaningful. Um, the last, the very last thing I'll say is I also find it useful for team sports. It's very easy for a track coach to say, Hey, here's all my bounding exercises. And that's cool. Like it's good when basketball players go do track. I think basketball players have made excellent jumpers on the high school level. And I think there's a good symbiosis between the two sports or high jump, especially. Um, but I really like, and I've seen that I've seen this done in the gym. I really like it is almost doing like a box bounding parkour thing. So rather than it being about bounding technique, which doesn't mean anything for a basketball player, uh, set up like a series of 12 inch boxes and make it like rocks going across the river and say, Hey, you guys have to get across these bound across these boxes and don't hit the turf. And then you can make one box higher or lower. Maybe it's a six inch box, then a 12 inch box, then a, you know, then an 18 inch box, then a six inch box. And now you have to level change, which is cool. Right. Cause it's almost like the, you're going to level change in a game and it's solving a problem. And so it's just, it's, it's more meaningful. Uh, it's a more meaningful way to do it than, than just saying, Hey, we're going to learn to bound today. And I, who cares about learning bound technique? If honestly, if I'm in basketball, I love bounding, but it doesn't matter as much as just saying, Hey, here's a fun problem to solve. Can you do it? And then make the boxes farther apart. Hey, who got that? You know, kids are way more excited about that than just trying to learn how to bound for the sake of bounding. No, hundred percent. And like, I love that you're saying like the different variations of boxes, the different level of boxes, like you said, they have to solve a problem. Like they have to do that every single day practice in a game. Like that's the biggest thing. They're, they're problem solvers. We have to increase their ability to problem solve. And I think that, um, not to go off on kind of a, you know, different rant, but that's kind of where the separation between, you know, skills coaches or team coaches and uh, strength coaches come from yes. sometimes because our, like, like you said, are we just teaching them to bound to bound because that's part of our program or are we teaching them to bound because, and, and, and problem solve in that way, because maybe a bounding exercise necessarily isn't going to help us directly in basketball, but problem solving throughout those bounds in that drill that you just mentioned different variation box levels, the problem solving. And then the actual, like we have to recruit different muscle fibers. We have to exert different energy for different height levels. That's going to help us on the basketball level. And that's the things that sometimes is lost in communication with between like a strength coach and a skill coach or a strength coach and a, and a team sport coach. So I think that's like a, another interesting aspect that we don't always think about between those two different coaching staffs, I guess. Yeah, that's an awesome observation too, because it is that separation that keeps us. It's it just more makes us do stuff we don't have to. You know, yeah. it's just a waste of time, and people are bored. So, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I like I like the um the plow types. You said I'm sorry, I'm not not looking at you. I'm just writing them down on my phone. Um, yeah. deflect, yield, bounce, and then drops were the four. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like those a lot. Um. All right, cool. So the next one that I want to talk about is uh, deceleration, um, kind of training deceleration. Obviously, basketball is very deceleration heavy. Um, I was having a conversation with a couple of my colleagues about deceleration and kind of if you if you look on Instagram or anywhere else, you see these super, you know, sub-maximal uh, deceleration drills, whether it's like a, a bandit, like a oh, quote-unquote overspeed banded deceleration mm -hmm. drill where you're kind of just like a lateral lunge into a, like a, like a 
a stop somewhat deceleration. Um, do you think there's any time and place for those kind of deceleration drills or how do you actually train deceleration? Because in our conversation, we were talking about basically if you, if you do your plyos, if you play basketball, if you get your sprint work in and then you just train essential greater force development and train the right way, you'll probably get the deceleration out of the way. You don't have to do the two by eight sets of mm-hmm. banded work. You know what I mean? So it just some of your thoughts on that kind of stuff. Oh man. Yeah. It's yeah. I hate to swear on a show that I've just been on for the first time, but that's just board coaches come up with shit to do. It, it's yeah. seriously like it is, it is coaches who feel their need to be validated in their world, in their very small and controlled world of the grand scheme of things. And it's like, it's like, I guess you could say it's, um, I like this was in the seventies. It's like, man, I'm old when I'm like coming up with these these. Uh, I, this was before I was born, but it's Bruce Lee. He's he's instructing a young student, and one the first thing he talks about is emotional content. The kid like tries to kick him. He's Bruce Lee's like kick me, and the kid kind of does like a you know half hearted kick, and he's like he's like no, he's like emotional content because the kid just did it because he just he was just taught to do it that way. He didn't put his heart in it. So mm-hmm. the kid, you know, they go through a few, and the kid like actually. He actually gives his emotion more of a fullness of his being into the kick. And then Bruce talks about he, he's uh, pointing his finger at the moon. And he's like, don't look at the finger, look at the moon. And the finger is all these things to me. The moon is the athlete in motion. It's the complexity of sport that's really hard to define. In fact, you can. It's so complex to say exactly why this play happened or this movement happened. It's this, it's the only way to really read it is more on the level of emotion and intuition and actually doing it. And the finger is all the things that we like try to micromanage and make more of a big deal than it really is. You know, if you have show notes, or, you know, look up like Bruce Lee, YouTube finger pointing at the moon. It's awesome. I was just talking yeah. about it in my last conversation, but to me, it's like all those, just watch someone do a pro agility. I mean, is there not insane deceleration built into that system? There's absolutely yeah. like it's, I guarantee if you, a muscle emg or like a force plate there on that change of direction you're going to get such insane outputs on that deceleration or just watch people playing sport it's crazy so to me i'm like if you really wanted to train it just have someone do a pro agility and time them because if they got better at that well you better believe their deceleration ability got better like why do we have to do these half heart like with no emotional content what's the meaning of having a band and like stopping that's so disconnected from meaning. I mean, at least try to find a way to make it more meaningful, like almost like, I don't know, like if you don't decide in time, like you like, I don't know, step on a kitten or it's like morbid, but like something yeah, like yeah, yeah. something to motivate you for not decelerating quickly. I, I just think it's just, it just is the highlight of our uh, disconnection and the need to feel like you're doing something here. So I just, yeah, I don't know, unless maybe someone comes up with some sort of research where they legitimately did this deceleration drill and then legitimately made a big improvement in some viable change of direction thing. I I just don't think that data is ever necessarily going to be there. But even if it did somehow get there, it would be it would have to be a training situation where they weren't at the same time actually playing sport and training deceleration. It's built in the system. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, I could go off about that for a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where I'm super intrigued with the performance and the the skill because you can train, like if, if, if you have a knowledge level of, of both, even a little bit, you, you can train implicitly deceleration on the court. Like obviously you're doing that all the time, but you can, you can then target it because if I'm doing 
a ball handling drill, say, and I'm saying, all right, you're starting at half court or say the opposite baseline. And I want you to dribble at hundred percent speed. As soon as I say, stop, you need to pound dribble, stop right there. That's a, you're probably going to get max effort deceleration right there. Or if yeah. I don't say stop again, you're going hundred percent as fast as you can with the dribble. If I cut you off, you need to go the opposite direction. Chances are, you're probably going to plant that leg with max intent, deceleration, change of direction. So th- th- those are the kind of things that that I think about whenever I'm doing on-court sessions that kind of tie into the weight room, the performance aspect of things. Whereas you probably don't need, like you said, like the banded stuff, unless some crazy research comes out where it's, it's justified, but that's kind of yeah, my I highly doubt it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. I, I, yeah, I remember even the first time, cause I've, I don't say that not having ever done this stuff like i remember i've done it and i just remember i was like what is this doing and i will say too if you're doing the yielding plyometrics, i too i think you actually the raw qualities you get with simple like if i'm doing yielding plyometrics like hey jump over these hurdles and i do want you to drop down to 90 degrees to go into the ground there's some yielding you know if i was doing the drop that's like some yielding if i'm doing uh, like a very basic plyo, like I didn't mention this, but like, I also really like like speed Russian lunges where you're in like an isometric or a standstill lunge hold and you have to switch the legs in the air real quick and land it and mm-hmm. stick it. Yeah. That's deceleration, a very raw level, no skill attached, just as fast as you can, freeze the position. I can't imagine that anyone who could do speed Russian lunges as well wouldn't have the necessary strength and ability to go out and do basic change of direction. So it's, and I think there's more meaning when you're doing those speed rush and lunges, because like, hey, this is a plyo. Like, this is like, there's there's something about switching your legs in the air and hitting and sticking and freezing that I just think I don't know. I, in my opinion, um, you you if we're talking about raw abilities, because someone doesn't have raw abilities. Like, if someone can't do a squat and le- like a deep squat level change, like with a goblet squat, like if someone can't do a goblet squat, they probably can't even get in a good position to decelerate well. But if someone can't do a good goblet squat, I try to ban it to sell it. It's just going to look like trash. You know, it's like, I think it's more about, in thinking about that more, I do think it's more about just creating the raw, like ability to level change. And you could do some speed rush and lunges and stuff like that. But um, I just don't yeah. think it's, it's unnecessary complexity by magnitude. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned the, the speed rush and lunges. Uh, part of our pregame prep is uh, I'll have like partner stuff one partner will hold the shoulders and we'll get into a full lean and we're in a lunge. And as soon as they like, you're putting all your body weight into that lunge. As soon as you pull the hands back, you have to switch the legs real quick and then basically just maintain that position, be stable in that position. And then they'll put the hands back on They push, switch the legs again. So it's similar to that. And I, I like that one a lot. Um, <clears throat> but to kind of continue forward with this question, um, I, I was curious on your thoughts with youth athletes, especially if you're working with um, some youth athletes, what is your, what, what is your thoughts on, because if they're playing the sport of basketball, they're, they're being exposed to these higher loads, higher velocities, things like that. Do you, is, is, do you feel like we need to regress basically the lifts and everything in the weight room? Like it, should we start with a foundational type stuff or do you feel like their body, their system as a whole is somewhat ready for any complexity, I guess, to, for, for lack of better terms. So like youth athletes just starting in the weight room, like with something like simple or. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, for me, I would say, you know, it's funny because even my own kids, like they're four and six and they, they see me like exercise. So they know what like 
air quotes training is and they'll like if they see kettlebells like in the basement they'll like start listening and say oh we're exercising but it's almost like kind of funny to them they're not actually trying to do it yeah so it's like kids are <laughs> any kid honestly is built to pick up a weight uh but for me i'd say for kids i don't really want them it's almost partly too it's like you're gonna have so much weightlifting ahead of you it, right. why do we give me a really good reason why we need to start right now because i know you're gonna get this a lot in high school and even middle school and to me, it's more like, well, what's the advantage of starting now versus later? Uh, and I would rather mostly do isometric movements until mm-hmm. probably about age 12. I think that's kind of that age where I'm like, right now we can start doing some of these. And you can get to it's you can get so much out of even just like a wall sit. Like you wouldn't believe how many like 10, 12 year olds will do a wall sit and like their knees are like touching each other. They aren't they don't know how to line up their shins vertical to the ground. Like they can't get their back against the, like it's like, let's just do that first or yeah. like to be able to hold an ISO lunge. So I, and I, and I really, I love the idea of doing simple, better, doing simple, savagely. Well, I want to get as much out of my basic isometrics and then like an isometric and then ability to switch as I can uh, for as long as I can. But to me, I'm like, yeah, once you're 12, 13, you can do goblet squats, push up regressions. I don't, I see almost no need for complexity in the weight room. Honestly, at any level, I really don't necessarily I would rather get it out of sport versions of the sport. Like I said, low rim dunking, small sided games, making games out of like different dynamic moves. Like I mentioned with like, I'd rather take a, do water bag goalkeeper for five minutes, than sit and do six rotator cuff exercises to me. Like right. it's so mundane. So yeah, I mean, to me, it's just the basics are pretty simple once you're, so it's isometrics age 12 or 13, start doing the basics and take it from there. Yeah. I think I've, I didn't phrase it very well, but sometimes nope. whenever you see, um, like, like you said, like probably between, I don't know, eight to 10 year olds going to the gym, like they do start off with those like very quote unquote basic mundane things. Um, so more so like, like snap downs, like they're trying to teach them proper form to those kind of things. Like, oh, I gotcha. You, you know what I mean? So I like, like fun fundamentals, like, right. right. So do you, do you think we should start with a fundamental type things or, I mean, you kind of, you kind of already answered it, but like, is it, it, it makes sense to do water bag stuff to, to do kind of tumbling, crawling, those kind of like animalistic human movements mm-hmm. more so those kind of things, because it can be body weight. Obviously I, I agree with you. I would rather, you know, strip as much adaptation as we can from body weight rather than introducing them into weights early. Um, but like plyometrics and like lands, landing mechanics and those kind of things, because if they're already playing the sport, they're going to be exposed to that. But is it, are, are we doing them a disservice if we do like a high altitude job or if we're doing, you know, something along those lines, that isn't just a snap down, I guess I should say. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. So for me, I will do the coaching in like, like, let's just take the wall sit. Like, let's say it's a 10 year old because yeah. I have somebody who, a 10 year old who is exactly like this. And he trains with his older brothers who are like 12 and 14. So it's kind of a funny dynamic, but uh, I'll have them do what, like this kid on wall sits, like he's the epitome of it. His knees are like almost touching each other. It's like a triangle. Like he's playing a triangle on deep, you know, I mean, and you end up in that triangle position all the time for sure. Right. But for me, that's the most coaching I'll do is say, Hey, on this wall sit, I just want 90 degree angles. And it's almost like Jay Schrader, who coach who I got a lot of the ISO stuff from was all about 90 degrees. I've been trying to figure out a little bit more about why that was and thinking about that. And to me, I think that 90 degrees is the balance point that kind of lets people self-organize into a relative balance. So meaning like, let's just say an ISO lunge. And if you look at that front leg in the ISO lunge, 
kids who have weak legs, weak quads, they're more elastic. Maybe they're more like one leg jumper springy types. They will tend to let that knee travel behind the heel. So the angle of the front leg becomes greater than 90. It's like 100, 110. They have weak legs and they don't want to get into their leg. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you get some like wide ISA types who are very strong in the quads, kind of stuck in late stance, very good accelerators. And they tend to be closed, more closed than 90. They will like kind of bias towards 80 or 70. And so for me, a 90 degree angle, just letting kids work in that will bring them into the relative balance of whatever they need. You know, it might help the more elastic person to get a little more strength. It might help the strong person to get a little more hamstrings and, you know, from a relative perspective. So I will set kids up there. I will coach them on that. Uh, anything else is, I will say as little as humanly possible. Uh, yeah. and, and, and if it's too much, like I wouldn't like it, like if it was a kid and like the box got too high, the point where the landings were deteriorating, we would just use a lower box, but yeah. I would much rather, um, do like the isometrics and honestly go just do like parkour in the woods, you know, where like you aren't like really, I, I will say the one thing with parkour that is interesting is uh, the, the last landing, like let's just say I'm bounding over logs and stones or whatever, or park benches. The final landing is called a precision landing where the only constraint is your feet have to hit together. It was kind of like a mm. stylistic thing. It's like, this is, it's like a front, you know, started in France. It's like style. Okay. So, but mm-hmm. what's interesting is that how the feet hit together on that landing, the knees go out, which is more relative external rotation, which maybe provides a balance to all the internally rotated things you did. I don't know. Um, so I will just very, I will very cautiously pick anything I say. I will err on the side of using story or just creating a fun environment. And really, yeah, just try to say as little as humanly possible and just, and, and really make it more about the, the drill or the exercise the, that I select more than telling them how to solve it. And I just think we kind of can devoid the artistry by doing that too much. And I think it's top to bottom, right? Like, do we coach, how much do we coach the fundamentals in sport itself versus letting athletes create and all that kind of thing? So, it is, which is an interesting question. You know, I, I don't think there's a concrete answer, but I think you and I probably would both agree that we don't do enough artistry. So, no, hundred percent. And to to that whole question, uh, Jeremy Frisch does a does a really good job with uh, all his youth athletes. I, I've been following him for a little while, actually, mm-hmm. since I listened to him on your podcast a little while ago. And his 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 work is fun with all the, awesome, yeah. the athletes that he has. Yeah. Um, and then you like you were alluding to it, uh, the ISOs. Uh, the last question that I wanted to to ask was, um, I know you, um, Austin Yoakum. Jake Tura, and then probably a couple other people that I'm that I'm missing do long duration ISOs, like three to five minute ISOs. What is, oh, yeah. what, is what is the reasoning behind that? Um, I I actually commented on Austin's post a little while ago, and he gave me a, a actually a decent answer. But just just curious, like what is the science behind that? What is what is the mentality behind that? Where did you learn that from? Just just your thoughts. Yeah, so that's that's a Jay Schrader thing. Uh, Jay Schrader was in a total different space than any other strength coach. If you go, if you, you know, YouTube, Google Jay Schrader, he'll say that he got all his methods and Jay's like 65 now, I think. And mm-hmm. he rose to fame training a guy named Adam Archuleta, who was kind of a not so well-known football player who showed up at the NFL combine and just, you know, just destroyed the combine basically like at six foot two twenty, you know, jumped like 39 and a half, ran a four or three, something bench two twenty five, an insane amount of times. And he was strong too. I mean, he was, 
you know, in football, it's more warranted for sure. But squatting 600 something, benching like 500. I mean, just like yeah. wrong numbers almost. Like yeah. just crazy. He didn't actually have that much success in the league and probably, you know, perception and action and being the ability to play the game. But or maybe I, I you know, I, who knows 100%. But it was indisputable that Jay was able to get that guy in an insane physical condition. And the ISOs were a baseline of a lot of Jay's stuff. It's actually kind of his home base. I think, to my knowledge, that is the first step in his system. And it is long and very difficult. And speaking to Jeremy, Jeremy shot me something that Jeremy loves Jay Schrader, too. Uh, I think there's something in the ether about it almost. like It's almost like this, like, you just know that there's something really valuable here. But it it is interesting because I, I had that question myself. And why five minutes? You know, like, and and... So here's the science. I'll start with the science and then I'm going to start getting a little esoteric because Jay is esoteric. Mm-hmm. Um, his like where he he got his stuff in dreams. He drew from a different well than everybody else. Jay will say it was like, oh, I read the Russian stuff. I don't think he found that much in the Russian manuals. I think he got it from his own intuition and maybe he had taken some other things. But because nobody does. <laughs> who does five minute yeah, yeah. ISO plunges? It's just crazy. Uh, so we'll start with the science that, as far as I know. Uh, well, lunge, uh, an ISO extreme like Jay does it, it's a, it, think of it as a you're pulling into a stretch range. If I'm doing a lunge, I'm pulling down into the extremity of that lunge. I'm taking it far. I'm straightening the back leg and pulling down with the hamstring of the front leg. Mm-hmm. Even in a wall sit, it's hard to do, but I'm pulling down with my hamstrings as hard as I can to like try to lengthen my quads. If I'm in a push-up position, I'm pulling down with my back to pull myself lower. So that's like a common theme. And within that, you do get um, muscles can only change length, I think around 10% tops is like, and we see that even seems like a lot, but you get a longer fascicle length and that's been proven to be good for the stretch shortening cycle. So if we're talking loaded stretching, you have that benefit. That's one. Uh, Two is position, which is like an awareness of the posture in the lunges, whatever it is, whilst it you do have this very upright posture. It's almost like uh, you think of like a yoga, you have a good, you're, everything is aligned. It's straight and tall and aligned. So you have that alignment, which I think is helpful posture. Jay calls it position, which I, I think that has a deeper meaning than just saying being good posture, but we just say it's good posture. So you have muscles lengthening, you're in a good posture. From a strength perspective, there is a basic strength that happens, but I would say it's more like constant tension. And so often in the weight room, we actually don't have very constant tension. Or you can just think of someone doing like back squats with not good form. Like they're going to go down until they kind of run out of range. Then they'll stick their hips back too far and use their back more. Like the tension's kind of shifting as an athlete might go throughout a movement. So it offers an athlete a chance to sit with tension for longer than they would typically be exposed to. And I think we don't appreciate sitting with tension sometimes. So we're actually in some of these holds for an extended period of time. I mean, even 30 seconds is enough to sit with tension, but I think longer is helpful. Um, and then the muscle ischemia is another one. This was something that I was looking at blood flow restriction research for a swim book that I've been writing. And um, Chris Caviglio, who does a lot of blood flow restriction, sent me this. Is basically muscle ischemia, which is like actually a lack of blood flow. So if I have a temporary lack of blood flow for a period of time, and then I get it, there's a huge overshoot in whatever I do after. So... In that sense, the ISOs are used to recovery. I believe if I'm doing like a lot of muscle tension for an extended period of time, that actually is temporary ischemia. And then when you let that off, you actually get a boost for whatever you're doing after. And so I did this experiment in the gym a year ago where I got this idea from Jeremiah Flood. 
he's like, this is the juice. This is the warm up. Do like a long ISO lunge, like three, four, five minutes. Then you do like 20, 30, 40, 50 altitude drop legs or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you go do whatever it is you're going to do. Like that's, and that's a Jay Schrader thing. And I did that warm up with whoever was in the gym that day. We had the 20 meter sprint out. Literally everybody that did that ran either a PR or tied their PR. And what was crazy too, is it was consistent. A lot of times you have people run sprints. It's like one's really fast and one's a little bit off. Like even for me personally, like I was running right at my PR sprint after sprint. And I was like, what is going on with yeah. this thing? Like, I don't get this. I mean, it's, it, but I think a lot of that was like, you know, it's just, it is it's just such an intensive warm up that you get like a very physiology based section with the long hold. And then you get the neurological warm up with the drops. So that's the basic physiology. But then the question is why go three, four, five? Like that seems like a lot. Um, I know for me personally, I've had stints where I did four or five minute ISO lunges every day. And when I was doing that, like I was recovering really fast from everything else I was doing. My squats were going up. My vertical was getting really high. It's not the movement that the lunge does not give you the qualities. It recovers you from everything else you're doing. And that was like something that I finally kind of figured out. It's like, oh, like, I will say, though, for a 10-year-old, it probably does give you qualities, you know? Like, right. if you can't do a minute wall sit, yeah, you're going to get something out of that. But, like, what's the benefit of going three, four, five? To me, it is just, like, it's more recovery and capacity to do work. And Jay talks a lot about, like, his athletes being able to come in and do the same height of jump, like, a very high explosive output day after day after day. I think that has something to do with it. Um, but it is mentally demanding it's hard and it's not everyone's cut out for it in fact I, when i write work i usually only do two to three and a half minute holds because i feel like beyond three and a half there's a certain you have to be cut from a certain type of cloth to really embrace that and to not have a pain this sucks response that actually could diminish it it's tough to do those holds for a long period of time like i, I can only sustain that for like, like six weeks and after six weeks i'm like I don't want to start my work with another five minute lunge, right? I mean, that's, I, I can, but so with kids, especially, I, I tend to do a lot shorter holds, like 20, we'll go 20, then we'll take a 10 second break, 30, 10 second break, 40. That was another J kind of prescription. So there's a lot of ways you could do it. Um, part of it is just to play around with it. But again, it's it's basic strength, basic posture, basic muscle length dynamics, the 90 degrees, it's basic muscle balance. It's basic physiological warm up. And then it's also recovery. Uh, and then the last, the esoteric thing is it does, I, I, you could say that it builds will. There is some will, human will, whatever it is about being human and having a will. I think, you know, you could say, oh, being tough training, that doesn't do anything. I, I do think sitting there with tension, with discomfort, with an intention can do something. Jay has said to me, he's like, my athletes do this and they do better in the classroom. Maybe it's just Maybe it does develop willpower. I'd be, you know, like there is something linked between the mind and the body, but that may go beyond this basketball performance conversation. Um, that's something I'm still highly interested in, but that's something the science I think won't be there for a long time. Then. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, the science would probably be very subjective too. It'd be tough to like actually yeah, yeah, yeah. follow, but it's super, super interesting. And I think that there's got to be a correlation. Um, it's funny though. Uh, sometimes I'll do, Basically, like, just like, well, I'll get in a circle with our with our team and I'll be like, all right, we're just finishing up with an ISO lunge and we're going until I stop. And basically, I like, I, I can hold it objectively longer than a lot of the guys can. Uh, I Well, actually, now we're probably, some of us are pretty even. Mm-hmm. But to begin with, it was like, I would go for probably two and a half, three minutes, um, maybe even three and a half minutes. And, you know, two minutes in, they're like, 
they're like doing, they're just antsy. They're like touching their face oh, yeah. and shaking. So the, the, the mental aspect of things is funny. Um, but yeah, that's, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I appreciate your, your insight there and everything that you just, you know, broke down because I, I'm probably going to start using that a little bit more. And I, and I like the science behind it a lot, but time is ticking. So, um, I don't want to take too much of your time. Um, that was, that was pretty much all the questions that I had for you. I really do appreciate your time, Joel. Is there anything that you would like to leave with, um, you know, the listeners, whether they're, uh, incoming, uh, strength and conditioning coach, uh, performance coach, athlete, whatever it is, there's just some stuff that you want to end with and then just plug away to whatever you have. Yeah. I just think the best, if you're not familiar with my stuff, um, you know, Instagram, just fly sports. I do a lot of like biomechanics and, you know, training and just general thoughts there, but, uh, getting on my email list, I, I have some, you know, there's always the hook, the performance training eBooks, but really it's just, you know, if you want to hear weekly, I'll, I'll talk about, uh, thoughts I have on training. Usually it's a podcast guest and my thoughts on some of their ideas. Um, yeah, hop on my email list and you can find that at, at justflysports.com or uh, follow the link tree on my Instagram. Also Twitter, just fly sports. So uh, those are some ways you can keep up with me and what I'm doing. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to put all that into the show notes as well. And I'll, I'll include, um, everything, you know, any podcast books, Instagram, everything. So Joel, I really appreciate your time, man. I, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. Yeah. Tyler, thanks for having me. It was great talking to you again. Appreciate being on your show. Yeah. To the deep.